You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message by Randall Worley. As I think about Randall, I always go back to when we first met. I guess it was close to 30 years ago. Randall was pastoring down in Pineville, and I was selling restaurant equipment. And we began to develop a relationship then, and I really... I love and appreciate Randall. I was thinking about him this morning. One of the things that impresses me is when he and I get together and just talk, I really get encouraged and edified. It's really um, wonderful to have a guy you can really talk to. And One thing, too, is it, it can be a bit rare to find people saved as long as Randall and I are and still in ministry. I don't know if you realize that, but, and the reason is, um, bad stuff can happen to good people, but bad stuff happens to everybody. And the problem is we have this sort of concept that's not a good concept. And it is that nothing challenging will ever happen to us because we're children of God. But the truth is we're children of God. And through that relationship, he enables, he enables us to become more than conquerors. You know, we need to fight the good fight of faith. We need to face different battles because the Bible in the Old Testament, I'm sorry, in the book of Revelation talks about the overcomers and everybody, how many wants to be an overcomer? Well, to be an overcomer, there's something you're going to have to come over and, um, Sometimes life can be tough, but the thing I've recognized with the Lord over the years is through, through every battle, he gets, he becomes richer and richer to me. My relationship with the Lord becomes more and more valuable. And Randall to me is a gift that God's put in my life because we can uh, we can fellowship together. We can talk about things that matter and come away better off than when we got together. So let's give it up. This is Randall Worley. Thank you, Robert. Good morning, Queen City. I uh, always enjoy coming here, um, especially on Donut Sunday. Um, I hope that you didn't ingest so many of them that... Um, it has a dozing effect on you. I have that effect on people anyway. Robin, the feelings are mutual. They really are. Um, whenever my phone rings and I see that it's you, I intentionally take time. There, You know, that's a wonderful thing about caller ID, isn't it? Um, but I intentionally take time because our, our relationship is one that is mutually rewarding and enriching. I want to ask you, if you will, to turn to Luke's gospel and chapter 10, and I'll join you in just a few minutes. I want to talk to you about one of the best-known parables that Jesus ever told. I I love Sundays for a number of reasons. Uh, It's not necessarily because I get to speak to people in various venues, but... um, Sundays, for me at least, is a, is a great opportunity to unplug, 
really, really genuinely unplugged. And I, I like what Anne Lamott said about unplugging. She said almost anything will work again if it's unplugged for a few minutes, even you. And I think that's true, isn't it? So I want to talk to you about mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, that particular concept, that idea, is found in the epistle of James. I'm not going to be in the book of James this morning. I'm going to be in Luke's gospel. And I'll read to you in a moment um, a very familiar parable. Uh, There's probably not a person in here that has not read it or at least heard it referenced. But I do believe that most of us are suspicious of the copious nature of God's mercy. And I think the reason for that is because we tend to think that God's sense of judgment is the same sense of judgment that we have. That his judgment is retributive when in reality it's restorative. And that's a really important thing for us to understand. You know, the iconic symbol of justice in this country is a woman who is blindfolded and she's standing in front of the Supreme Court. She's blindfolded. She has a sword in one hand and a set of scales in the other. That's a very retributive image and symbol, isn't it? And sometimes when we look at the justice of God and the mercy of God, they seem to be at odds with one another when in reality they complement one another. You'll find a number of passages, even in the Old Testament, where he is called not only judge, but savior. So there's not tension there, even though we assume that there is. Uh, I don't want to get too out, far out in the weeds on that particular idea, but I want us to move as quickly as we can to this particular story that Jesus tells. But I think it goes without saying that we probably live in the most paranoid culture that has ever existed in history because we feel that we're under constant surveillance. And I think religion also has caused people to have that perception of God, that he has us under constant surveillance. And the purpose for that is to catch us doing something wrong. I think we need to be reminded of the simplicity of what the psalmist said as he closes the 23rd Psalm when he said that goodness and mercy are following us all the days of our life. Not judgment, goodness and mercy. He he is really not trying to catch you doing something wrong as if he would be surprised by it anyway. So I've chosen this particular parable, Jesus, as my text this morning because I believe that Jesus was this storyteller from a ghetto that we've known as Nazareth that changed the dominant narrative and challenged the dominant narrative of his time with poignant parables. This is one of many. And I think that we're due a new story. I think we're due a new narrative. This is really an old story that is new. So I think they're going to pull up the passage if... Where are they? Oh, there they are. Okay. Um, So let's just read it together. And um, maybe our attitude ought to be, because none of us um, are free of unbiased thought, everything that we see, everything that we hear is always influenced by every old experience that we bring into it. 
So if it's possible, maybe we can read this uh, that has become familiar and let it become unfamiliar. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? I've always loved that Jesus seemed to constantly answer questions with questions. It's one of the things I've always loved about the narrative of his ministry. So he says, how do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But here is where the tension enters the text. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, here he goes with another story. Sometimes I wonder if these were true stories or if they were just the product of Jesus' fertile imagination, which is an understatement to say the least. Maybe that's challenging for some of you to say that Jesus would tell a story that maybe had the element of myth to it. And that is by no means is that undermining the credibility of what Jesus had to say. The truth is, if God ever says something that's not true at the moment, it becomes true when he says it. I'm sure that there are many of you right now that have been ruminating over something that God has said to you in a very personal and impactful way, and um, there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever to verify what he said. But remember, you know, he calls those things that are not as though they are. God's not a man that he can lie. So if he says something that's not true at the moment, it becomes true just because he said it. So Jesus replied and said, a man was going down to Jerusalem, to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. I really want you to let that word just begin to resonate in you because I'm going to come back to it. He went to him and bound bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. We could spend the rest of the morning or the day, for that matter, uh, excavating the truth that is there in just this whole sacramental exercise of pouring in oil and wine. And then he set him on his animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and kept and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think Which of these three have shown him mercy? And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I think I left something out there. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? There it is, to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him what? Mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, I mentioned earlier, in my opinion, this is probably one of the most misnamed parables of all the stories that Jesus told. Uh, It ranks right up with the parable of the quote-unquote prodigal son. Uh, 
who decided in Luke 15 that this should be called the parable of the prodigal son because the word prodigal means to spend lavishly and excessively. And so because we read that parable and we think the parable is really essentially about the son when really it was about the excessive and lavish nature of the father. So Luke is the only one that shares the parable of the quote-unquote good Samaritan, and it's not so much about the Samaritan as much as about the man who has been victimized. It is really more as of what happens in between, which has to do with this idea of mercy triumphing over judging. I think it's interesting that this exchange that takes place takes place between Jesus and a lawyer, one who is a practitioner of the law, who is skilled in finding people guilty. And so here we have mercy, Jesus, the embodiment, the personification of mercy, who is having a confrontation with judgment. Notice he asks Jesus a question, and that should be a little suspicious because of the tone of his question. Remember it said that he asked the question seeking to justify himself. Now, when I read that, I'm not projecting this on you. When I read that, I have to ask myself a question about the questions that I ask. Am I asking questions of God or am I asking questions of people that I respect who have insight into spiritual principles? Am I asking them questions really with a predisposition toward getting an answer that is satisfactory to me? That's really not a question, is it? I I think that we need to realize, I like the book written by David Dark that's titled, The Sacredness of Questioning Everything. And in it, he talks about how that he is suspicious of any God that cannot be questioned. The truth is, uh, whenever uh, now I'm, I feel myself drifting into the Old Testament, I don't think we realize how radical it was for us to be introduced in Genesis chapter 12 to God interacting with a man by the name of Abram. And actually, in that relationship, in that journey, you will see that there is this constant back and forth between them. Now, that's a radical idea because up until that point in the evolution of man's consciousness, there was no such thing as a God that would engage you in conversation and was actually tolerant of questions. Are are you still with me? Well, see, I think that 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 kind of mentality is still very much prevalent in the religious culture. God is not offended and he doesn't become defensive when we begin to ask honest questions. You mentioned this earlier about giving him permission to invade certain spaces that where we have uncertainty. I think he's waiting for that kind of vulnerability. I think really that's the essence of intimacy is to be able to be as honest and vulnerable as we possibly... That's what it means to be really to be a human. Otherwise... We're just actors on a stage. But when he asked that question, it was, it really was because he had a preconceived idea of what the answer would be. And Jesus totally rocked his world. 
It requires a measure, as far as I'm concerned, it requires a measure of intelligent humility in situations like this. Because the preservation of our beliefs die really hard. And that's what's happening. Uh, They have no, this is a totally foreign idea, this kind of copious mercy, indiscriminate mercy that he's talking about. So, this, you you had, you know, sometimes when I read uh, stories like this, I do my best to get inside the psyche of everybody that's in the audience, everybody that's hearing this, this back and forth. And, um, you know, if it doesn't make me feel uncomfortable, I'm wondering if I'm really reading it. The truth is, is that we don't, we don't read the Bible subjectively. We, the Bible in many ways reads us, doesn't it? Hmm. How many times, uh, have we been guilty of going to the scripture to find a proof text to prove what we already believe? I mean, that's what's happening. In most churches this morning is people are gathering with, with, with a Bible and listening to someone give a monologue like I'm doing and, uh, they're just hearing more of the same. Just hearing more of the same. I personally wouldn't go to a church that didn't challenge my beliefs. I wouldn't go to a church that didn't cause me to leave wrestling because, listen, I heard a podcast not long ago. I forget exactly exactly who was doing the podcast, but he was talking to this revered rabbi from one of the most uh, renowned rabbinical schools in Manhattan. And he made this statement. uh, He said, you know, one of the differences between um, Jewish people and Protestants, there are many differences, but one one of the differences is, is that you guys don't know how to argue very well. He had my attention. He says, as a matter of fact, he says, we consider argumentation and questions really an act of worship. He really had me then. How is that an act of worship? He says, because what it reflects, as I mentioned a moment ago, a measure of intelligent humility, where we're both recognizing that we don't have all the answers. It's not just... You know, us bantering, it's not just us wrestling at a cerebral level. It's a demonstration to God that we both want to know you more deeply. What's wrong with that? So, you know, for Jesus to call this, the uh, for Jesus to refer to the Samaritan or, or to infer goodness and mercy, this is really counterintuitive to the people that are hearing this, to the lawyer. This is dissonant to his standards of mercy and judgment because there was no precedent for this. See, maybe you're not familiar with the, the long and infamous history that existed between the Samaritans, uh, this mongrel race they were considered, this mixed breed, which all of this, of course, begins to uh, to transpire in the Old Testament, which we don't have time to explore. But to refer to, I mean, this this is um, somewhat of an 
oxymoron to refer to him to be as being the one who is demonstrating mercy. It's a, you know, you know, the many oxymorons like open secret and act naturally and found missing and deafening silence and the list goes on and on and on. What's, how could there be any goodness at all and mercy at all in a Samaritan? You see, they, they can't unremember the history that they had with them. They, uh, you know, this is not maybe as clear in scripture as you'd like, like to have it, but they remember very well an occasion whenever the Samaritans raided the temple and how they desecrated the temple. And one of the, one of the statements that was heard quite often, uh, during the time of Jesus, uh, was that, uh, he who eats bread, uh, the bread of the Samaritans eats the flesh of swine. So the prejudices are really, really deep-seated. And what's happening here is that this is shock and awe for this lawyer, for this astute religious leader. I've always already said it in some ways about how God loves to let us wrestle with our questions. And I think one of the reasons for that is because religion has this way of wanting to manage its expectations of God. When God starts acting like he's not supposed to, then we realize how much there is still latent idolatry that exists in us. There is, I think more than ever before, there's a need for us to embrace uncertainty and unknowing and realizing that we can't fully know God, but we can fully love God, which to me is far better than having all of my answers resolved. I've said this here before, I think. That whenever mystery is taken out of any relationship, not just your relationship with God, but your relationship with your companion, when mystery is taken, that element is taken out of the relationship, the relationship is doomed. It will die. You said earlier that we've known each other now for approaching 30 years, and one of the most astonishing things to you is that I've been a believer all those years, and I haven't walked away from my faith. The reason is, is because I have not let dogmatism determine my relationship with him. Are you still hearing me? That it is not so much about me having everything settled, because I let what Philip Yancey says, if if I can remember this and say it uh, the way he said it, He said, faith is trusting that what doesn't make sense now will in reverse. Shall I say that again? I mean, it's encouraging to me. I needed a dose of that myself. Faith is trusting that what doesn't make sense now will in reverse. The reality is, is if God gave you clarity on everything that you are demanding to have clarity on at this particular point in your journey is that it wouldn't require any faith. If he gave you total clarity, the truth is, is that you probably would become bored. And so when Jesus is telling this story, again, it's riveting. Pardon me for being so redundant. This is totally riveting. This is counterintuitive to them. 
He's inviting them into this mystery. And I mean, it just keeps ratcheting up because what he's describing here is this infamous road that 17 miles long that runs from Jericho down, I mean, up uh, to Jerusalem. Now, Jericho sits at 850 feet above sea level. Jerusalem sits at 2,500 feet above sea level. This is what almost, it's, it's, it's a really, really steep, you know, decline. It's a steep grade coming down. Not only that, it was, it was the most dangerous road known in all of Palestine. This is where the marauders, this is where the robbers would uh, ambush the unsuspecting. And that's, you know, that, that part of the story was not hard for them to believe. But what happens is when we see, you know, and for years, you know, being as religious as I am or as I have been, I'm, you know, I'm in recovery. I'm trying to get delivered. I still have relapses every once in a while. I told Robin earlier this week, you know, the quickest way to become a Pharisee is to become adept in identifying one. And most of the time, the things that you want to see change in other people are the things that needs to change in you. Moving right along. I mean, think about that. It's true, isn't it? That's why I've been able to be married for 40 years. I was reminded of this just yesterday. There are certain things about her that I think, well, you know, you need to change. And in that moment, I was convicted. No, I need to change the way I see that. Come on now. Are you guys okay? And so there this guy's ambushed. And uh, what I was about to say before you interrupted me is that Jesus introduces into the story a priest and the Levite. Now, you know, 15 years ago, I would have railed on the priest and the Levite and their indifference and their insensitivity to the situation. But in reality, you know, we need to let up on these people because all they were doing was staying within the confines of the law that they respected as a priest and a Levite. If they attended to this man, I mean, there had to be some real internal conflict here when they see this man who is bludgeoned within an inch of his life. The description in some of the manuscripts is that this man had been so badly beaten. I mean, see, he's just riding his donkey from Jerusalem. Maybe he'd been up there to church, maybe you know, to the, to the temple to worship, and he's going back down to some obscure village that is there in the shadow of the Dead Sea, the lowest place on the earth, and he's donkey jacked, you know? Um, and he's beaten beyond recognition. I mean, this guy's beaten so bad it would have taken dental records to identify him. So Jesus is so graphic in his description of this man's condition, lacerated, you know, beaten beyond recognition. And so this priest and this Levite sees this man in this condition, and they have to be struggling. I mean, they're human beings. I mean, I don't think that, you know, except for psychopaths, we can't make these guys psychopaths, except for psychopaths. I don't think that there's any of us that whenever we see something that is portrayed graphically on television, when we see the carnage that 
that man and the cruelty that man is capable of. And you're watching it even though you're in the comfort of your den. You're removed from it. But when you see it, it's like this past week I was watching a documentary on Vietnam. And, uh, oh, the unbelievable carnage that was coming through the screen. And even though I know that's something that happened in the 60s and into the early 70s, I mean, it did something here, right here. I, I didn't just feel it up here at a mental level. I, I felt something in my gut. You, you know what I'm saying? That See, what that is is compassion. The reason why God... The reason why God sent you and I here to the earth is not to thrive and to survive, to accumulate and to accomplish. That's not the reason why you're here. The archetype of all humanity, the only really human one, Jesus, make sure you hear me clearly on this, Jesus was not a human being. He was the human one. I put emphasis on the human one. He was not just a human being. He was the archetype of what humanity is supposed to be. Does that make sense to you? And if there's anything that is clear about his life, it's, it was not just the profundity of his teaching. It was not just the miracles that, you know, provided some measure of proof of his divinity. No, it was his compassion, his empathy. So the reason why that we are here having this earth experience is to experience empathy. Now, I know there are a lot of people that would say, uh, no, it's not that simple with all the complexities of life. This is, you know, as complex as my life is for you to tell me that the reason why I still have a pulse, the reason why I was projected into time and space is so that I could feel the pulse of his empathy for other human beings. It can't be that simple. The truth is it is that simple. That will revolutionize your life. You see, the incarnation, the purpose of the incarnation. Am I boring you guys with this? The purpose, you know, I'm starting to feel passion now. The purpose of the incarnation was not just to redeem us. That's obvious. The purpose of the incarnation is so that God, the infinite God, becomes finite The God who has never known fear, who has never felt pain, could enter into that human experience and feel it. That's what being human is really about. If I haven't felt what the rabbi felt, then I have not experienced the incarnation myself. The ongoing incarnation. How many of you would agree with the writings of the Apostle Paul when he says that we are the body of Christ? Would you agree with that? Some of you are, you know, you're not going to raise your hand no matter what I ask. It looks like. Should I go to the passage of Scripture and read it in 1 Corinthians 12? We are the body of Christ. We're many members, yet members in particular. Right? So if we are, not mystically, not metaphorically, we are the body of Christ. He is the head, Paul would say, and we are the body. So the purpose of your incarnation is the same purpose for his incarnation, is to feel what, because see, empathy is the echo of someone else's pain. We live in a culture that has so desensitized us and disconnected us Wait a minute. 
I thought we live now in the more, a more connected world than we've ever lived in. Really? It's a pseudo connection. It's a cyber connection. It's not real connection. I'm just going to be really, really candid with you and tell you that many years ago, you know, this became so real to me when I was, I don't remember where I was in the world, but I was in a hotel room and, and, um, I was really intensely seeking the Lord for what I was to say at this meeting. The truth is, is that I was intensely seeking him because I wanted to make an impression. Because in, you know, in this particular culture of preachers and teachers, you're only as good as your last message. Sad, but true. And so I'm, you know, I'm praying and, you know, you know, I'm contemplative and I'm just really straining to hear what God might say to me so that I could go parrot it to the people that I was about to see for the first time. And he told me, he said, you're asking for the wrong thing. You're asking for text. You're asking for information. He said, if you'll ask me to give you the love that I have and the empathy that I have for the people that you've never seen that you're getting ready to talk to, you will know what to say when you get there. I've never forgotten that. That may not be profound to you, but it certainly was to me. You know, Maya Angelou, I think she, the, the, this wonderful poet, I think she got it right when she said, you know, people will always forget what you say to them, but they will never forget how you make them feel. I, I don't want to just, you know, continue to hammer this point, but there, you know, this is something in 40 years of ministry, this is the most consistent question I get from people is what is the will of God for my life and how do I make sense of all these things that have happened in my life. And so when I tell them what they're here for, they're here to learn how to connect, to feel what other people feel. That we're not here, as Pierre Chardin said, he says, we're not here as human beings that are constantly pursuing spiritual experience. We are spirit beings that have arrived here that are having a human experience. You know, long ago before women ever had, you know, trained physicians to assist them in the process of giving birth, there were midwives. There are not as many now. I mean, this is a rare thing. So why, why would they call upon a midwife when she is in travail, when she is experiencing you know, not only physical, the most excruciating physical, but also emotional turmoil that a human being can experience in giving, bringing a life into the world. Why would they call a midwife? Because she has felt it. This is not technical to her. This is not theoretical to her. She's felt it. I hope you get the analogy. See, that's what people want, whether it's in the church culture, whether it's in our tribe or outside of our tribe. 
there's so much apathy and so much insensitivity and indifference. And that's, if you wonder if I have strayed from what Jesus was saying here, no, I'm not at all. I mean, this this 17-mile road was known as the valley of the shadow of death. That sounds familiar to you, doesn't it? And Jesus is saying, in that context is where I'm going to show you how mercy works. You know, every time something comes on the news that um, reports to us some inhumane act that someone has committed, you know, the recent school shootings, the list goes on and on and on. Those inhumane acts of man, I believe, and this may be a stretch for you, they reflect the misunderstood love of God for the victimized and the victimizer. It reflects the misunderstood love of God. God remains the same in the midst of the insanity. God remains empathetic. I'll never forget, uh, two or three years ago, I was with Ted Decker. Uh, some of you probably are familiar with some of Ted's work. Uh, he's a best-selling Christian fiction author. And I had the privilege of meeting him about four or five years ago. And he told me this story about how that he wanted to really connect with his readership. I mean, he sold 10 million copies now, north of 10 million copies of his books. I love this guy. He's a mystic. I love mystics. Uh, I feel sometimes uncomfortable when I'm talking to him. That's good, by the way. That's healthy. You need to talk to people that make you feel uncomfortable. Because what it does, it delivers you from who you think you are. That you, listen, when it comes to identity, you're not who you think you are. You're not who other people think you are, but you think you are. And so he told me that he wanted to connect more with his uh, reading audience and so he posted on social media, he says, I'm, gonna, I'm going to have a, a lottery and um, I'm going to choose a name or we're going to have someone to choose a name and you'll be able to call me and ask me any questions. I'll, I'll give you a private number. You can call me and talk to me for an hour, ask me any questions about my writing process and where I come up with these ideas and, and how they unfold. And so there was a person that was chosen. He gets the call, uh, you know, at the designated time. And when he answers the call, there's a woman on the other end of the line. And she, as soon as he answers, uh, she said, Ted, I don't have any questions for you. I've got to tell you something that happened in my life, though, that happened as a result of one of your books. So he thought he was going to, you know, be this wellspring of wisdom for an hour. And so she begins to talk to him. This lady had been in ministry in a, in a particular uh, organization for many years, I think 30 or 40 years, and she had always struggled with being morbidly obese. I don't know exactly what chapter or what book she was reading of Ted's, but she had this epiphany. She said, Ted, I've tried everything. Uh, self-loathing doesn't even begin to describe how I felt ab about myself for all those years but I just never was able to conquer it. She said at some point in reading one of his books again that she was taken back to a time when she was a teenager. Now listen to this closely. She was taken back to a time when she was a teenager 
when she was violently raped by two teenage boys. She said, it was so surreal. I was actually there and I was watching myself be raped. And she said, then I sensed that Jesus was standing beside of me. And I looked and he was there. And tears were streaming down his face. And I looked at him and I said, why did you let that happen to me? And he looked at her and he said, I was not just crying for you. I was crying for the perpetrators. That does not fit our idea of mercy, does it? It doesn't fit at all. The call ended by her saying, Ted, I've lost over 150 pounds. I just wanted to let you know that what you did was you gave me a portal. You brought me through this liminal space that I'd been in, this limited view of God into understanding his mercy and his indiscriminate and unconditional love in a way that I'd never seen before. That he not only loved me in that moment, but he loved them. He had mercy for them. He had compassion for them. The problem with most of us, you know, and we all have our moments, don't we, where we relapse into judgmentalism because we think the way we see things are really the way they are when it's really just the way you see it. And that's what causes us to be judgmental. That's what causes us to withhold mercy, right? That's what causes us to withhold mercy and compassion. I just feel like I got to go back and say it one more time. Why are you here? Why do you have a pulse? It's to experience empathy. If that's what he came to do, that's why he sent you here. That's what Jesus is getting at. This, to me, is, is the underlying theme of what Jesus is trying to convey to this litigious personality, a lawyer. I really believe, uh, as Paula D'Arcy says, I believe that God comes to us disguised as our life. I had a conversation recently with someone that um, has been journeying with the Lord for a long time. And it's always been interesting to me about following Jesus that... Um, even though he's within us and around us and before us, we still have to journey to find him. <laughs> I don't fully understand. If you've got that sorted out, please help me with that, okay? You know, it's like Luke says in the book of Acts. He's not far from any of us if, if by chance we might just grope after him. If you're groping right now, wonderful. Uh, that was meant to be encouraging. If you're groping, that's, that's, that's great. That's good. He, he is the one, you know, hide and seek is the brainchild of God, God our Father. You know, it used to be easy. You know, it's kind of like with my, my grandchildren right now. I got, they range from two years old to 10 years old, or, or three years old to 10 years old. The three year old, when I play hide and seek with him, I make it a little more obvious. Make it a little easier for him. The 10 year old, it's a little more difficult. Why? 
is because I want to continue the intrigue. God is always hiding that we might seek him. Doesn't hide from us, he hides for us. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the honor of kings to search that matter out. Don't worry, it's almost over. I said almost. I've for years been obsessed with, almost addicted to more knowledge to somehow maybe compensate for some kind of sense of inferiority and inadequacy that I've had. Not realizing sometimes that the encounters that I desperately want are standing right in front of me, almost hidden in plain sight. Maybe that's the reason why Jesus would say in Matthew 25, remember, he says something that's absolutely stupefying to the disciples. I mean, this is before he goes to the cross. This is before he is put in a tomb and resurrected. And he said, um, I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. And they, they're so bewildered. What do you mean? When did that happen? Really, when did that ever happen? He said, As you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. And so when he is showing himself alive by many infallible proofs after his resurrection over that 40-day period of time, appearing and disappearing everywhere, and he's appearing in the most inconvenient moments, which, by the way, I love what G.K. Chesterton says about inconvenience. I love it. He said, an inconvenience is an adventure misinterpreted. You know, the way, this is what he said to me yesterday. I started to tweet it, and I thought, that might be just for me. (laughs) I may do it anyway. The way, we know Jesus, that is another moniker for him, right? The way will not get in your way. He won't. But he has this endless invitation for you to experience his way that will lead you to what real adventure looks like. Yeah. Go see... This was really an inconvenience for this guy, wasn't it? He wasn't expecting this. This guy that had compassion, this Samaritan. Maybe, go ahead and stand. I don't know exactly when you guys land the plane. Maybe I had to circle the runway a bit. (laughs) Is it possible that and it's important that you hear this clearly, that what you're perceiving concerning God's absence, the absence of his presence in your life right now is actually proof of his presence. And he's trying to teach you how to perceive him in a different way, how he is morphing, because he appeared as a gardener, didn't he, to the first person that came to the tomb. Then he appeared as a fisherman. Then he appeared as a stranger. Never quite sure how... I love that. Again, that's, that, it's not metaphorical language. I, I think she was right when she said God comes to us disguised as our life. 
and giving us the ongoing opportunity to allow mercy to triumph over judgment. To know that we can't fully know him, but we can love him. And when we do that, we cannot resist or restrain it from flowing through us. Let me pray for you. Come on, Andy. Lord, uh, you described your mercy as being tender mercies. The psalmist so eloquently tried to find words uh, to define the ineffable, the undefinable. Tender mercies. I want you to put your hands right here because this is, this is where you really live, not up here. You, you live right from here. You know, from the abundance of the heart and when, the, whenever, you know, the Old Testament writers would be using that language, they weren't talking just about here in the center of your chest. They were talking about something deeper, a deeper level. Do you want to live at a deeper level? That was a question. Do you want to live at a deeper level? You know. Well, maybe the deeper level that he wants you to experience is going to cause you to feel and to live this empathic life. And to know when it happens, it is not, you know, this is not something that is going to cause you to be infected with what is affecting other people. Because we either live life as if we were born with a terminal disease called life, or that we live life as if we came here with an antidote for the suffering. Yeah. So I pray right now. I, I, I'm not praying for people up here at this level. Let us, let us take this long 17, 18 inch instead of 17 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem to the temple. Let us, let us take this long journey, Lord, into the depths of who we really are. Know that Christ Our life is hid with Christ and God. And if there's anything that personifies who you are, it is the Christ. It is compassion. Let me feel it. Lord, and I don't dictate to you. I give you permission, like Andy said. I don't dictate to you where, when, how, or with or with who. But I want to experience it. Can you really say that? I want it from here. I want to live from here. Dispel every argument like this lawyer that asks the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Knowing that eternal life is not life after life, but eternal life is experiencing life within this life. It's a quality of life. Yeah. I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. You've been so kind. Would you grab a seat, and we'll receive an offering for Randall if our ushers will come up. I didn't alert the ushers personally, but I did make mention if you guys will. And if you would like to, um, uh, if you need an envelope, why don't you raise your hand? We'll be glad to give you one of those. Someone in the way back needs an envelope. Anybody else? Also, you can um, also text. Once again, it's you text QCC giving. To seven seven nine seven seven. Follow the link, and you'll see under the fund.
column there, you can choose guest speaker, and that's the option you need to be sure and choose. And um, once again, you can make checks out to QCC or Queen City Church. And uh, I'll just wait just a moment. Anyone else need an envelope? Thank you, Randall. That was really good. That was really good. Reminded me of Bob Jones. Randall and I have a a number of us here may uh, know or may know of Bob, but he, um, as the story goes, he died. And when he was in heaven, the Lord sent him back, said it wasn't time to stay permanently. So, But the two things I believe the Lord told him was about a billion-soul harvest and he asked him this question. He said, did you learn to love? And so Bob came back to learn how to love people all over again. So I think that's so so pertinent. Um, love your neighbor as yourself, the Bible says. So, Also, we do have uh, ministry teams. If you'd like prayer today, if you'll come up over on this side of the sanctuary here, we'll be glad to have a team pray for you. And next week we're going to begin... Um, a series on the Gospel of Mark. We'll take one chapter a week over the summer, into the fall. And a number of us are reading a great book written by Timothy Keller called Jesus the King. Let me say that again. I really recommend it. You ought to get that book and read it. Jesus the King by Timothy Keller. And that's his study on the Gospel of Mark. So everybody okay? Let's do this. Why don't we stand up and let's bless Randall like we did those students who graduated today. Just stick, extend your hands. and Father, we bless Randall today. Thank you for Penny and the kids and the grandkids. Thank you for your, his calling. Lord, we pray for the what you've put in his charge, Lord, the books, the messages, and the friendships. Lord, we ask that he would continue to go uh, full-term and be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless all you folks. See you next week. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.